Before we look at Ephesians 3, you've noticed there's a few people wearing some red shirts around. Uh, we've got a gang going to challenge next week um, in the big EFCA National Youth Conference, and I want to thank you guys for sending us um, through your pledges, your support, your prayer, your encouragement, um, and ask you to keep on sending us and supporting us uh, by praying for us while we're on our trip, as we pack up, as we make a long drive down, um, and while we're in Kansas City this week, um, pray that God would keep us safe um, and that he would work in us, because um, that's the goal. Hopefully, you are sending us away and something will happen that we will come back changed, uh, every one of us. I don't know how, um, but God has work to do, so I pray that he does it. would like you to turn... Uh, to the beginning of chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians. If you don't have your own Bible with you today, you can find one right in the back of the pew in front of you. And chapter 3 will be on page 1,157. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And most of Paul's letters are written to a specific church or individual. But Ephesians is interesting, even though it's addressed to the church in Ephesus, it's written with a really global scope. It's very much a letter to all Christians everywhere. And any of the letters in the New Testament are for us all today here to read, but they're usually speaking to a specific church's or person's circumstances. And this one could easily be addressed to Lance Free Church, except that Lanceans would be a funny title for a book of the Bible. But it's a letter... It's a letter for us. And we're going to jump right into reading it because you're going to see we're not going to make it very far before we have to stop. So Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason... Okay, stop. Told you. We have a bit of a problem here because I went and picked a passage today that starts with the words, for this reason, which means that whatever Paul is about to talk about, whatever he's about to do, it's because of what he's just been talking about. And I thought, uh, I thought about trying to work studying a little bit of chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2 before we got into chapter 3, but that, that was going to be a sermon you didn't want to sit through unless someone brought pizza and a lot of it. But fortunately, Paul's going to recap a lot of it for us in chapter 3 here, especially the things relating to what he's talking about. So we're going to be okay on understanding this prayer that he's starting in verse 1. That's what Paul is doing. It's a kind of, uh, at the end of the first half of Ephesians, before the second half, he starts to pray for us. And we're going to be okay on getting the context. But I really encourage you to go home and read the first two chapters of Ephesians, and then the last three, to get the full context here. But let's get back to verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul... And you'll notice Paul does that uh, when he's saying really important things in his letters. He kind of reminds you it's him speaking. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and we have to stop again. Because if you look in your Bibles, there's probably a hyphen there, or a line break, or some funny little stop, because Paul actually interrupts himself here. We get an unfinished sentence. Um, as soon as he starts this prayer... He breaks away from it. 
And he doesn't pick it back up until all the way down in verse 14. So what we have in verses 2 through 13 is basically a long digression. Um, He just kind of steps aside for a minute. Why? Why would Paul start to pray, but then right away go off on a a 12-verse tangent? Um, And he's not even speaking to us live. You know, I go off on tangents all the time when I'm talking, but he's sitting down and writing. So why would he do this? Well, it's got to be something important, he's telling us. But then still, why not just wait till later? Well, let's see if we can find out. Verses 2 and 3. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. So Paul assumes we already know who he is. And if you don't, here's a super quick version of his story. Paul was a respectable Jewish man, also a Roman citizen, a fellow with some clout in society. Uh, He was totally against the Christian faith. He hunted down members of the early church and in some cases even helped to orchestrate their executions. And then on his way to Damascus one day, he was heading there to arrest a few more Christians. He had this big, wild, personal encounter with God. You can read about it in the book of Acts. It's incredible. Where Christ spoke to him and he revealed the truth to Paul about who he was and he set him off on this mission to preach to the Gentiles. Now, who are the Gentiles, by the way? Because they've come up twice now. A Gentile is simply anyone who isn't Jewish. So you, me, vast majority of us here are Gentiles. Um, And as we go on, we'll see that it's a really big deal that, um, that they, that us, are the target of Paul's special mission. So Paul assumes that we know this already and that we've also heard about this mystery that he says he's written about before. And he has earlier in this book and in other letters he's written. But don't worry, he'll, he'll explain it again for us shortly. And in verse 4, he says he's not just going to repeat what he's told us about this mystery. He's going to clarify it some for us too. He says, in reading this then, in verse 4, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has been revealed by the Holy Spirit to God's, as it has now been revealed, sorry, by the, by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So he says that as we read this, it will help us understand the mystery. And verse 5 is really helpful for us today to understand what he means when he uses that word. Because when we say something is mysterious, we usually mean it's something that we can't quite figure out. It's sort of unknowable or tricky. We don't understand it. It's just a mystery. But in the Bible, a mystery is just something that wasn't known before, but is known now. Paul says that this is something people didn't know in previous generations, but now God has revealed it. And we'll talk more about that mystery in a minute. But So what do we know so far about going off on this tangent? We know that Paul seems to assume we already know a lot of what he's writing here. We also know that he's going to repeat it and clarify some of it a bit for us, add to our understanding. So why? Well, maybe Paul's just being a good teacher. Are there any teachers here today? Isn't that how you get information across, right? Repetition and clarification. It sounds pretty good. 
And I think Paul is definitely doing some of that, but we still have to ask why here and why now? Why the interruption? Have you ever watched one of those TV shows that, that starts every episode off with, previously on such and such? And then they show a bunch of clips from past episodes, right? Why do they do that? Well, because something in this episode is going to build on that past moment, right? And if it's not in your mind during this episode, then when they bring in that plot twist or that new little bit of information, you might not get it. Even though you've seen that before, and if someone asked you about that episode, you could tell them what happened. If it's not currently on your mind, you might just miss the point. And I think Paul is making sure that we don't miss the point. He's starting to pray this prayer, which we'll see is a really big, full, rich, big-time prayer for us. And if we don't have the right information present in our minds, there's a chance we'll miss the message. So he's going to repeat and teach us a little more of what he's already taught about this mystery. So then, finally, what is this mystery? We've mentioned it. What's he talking about? Verse 6 says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus. Huh? Okay, a little bit of background for that, so that we get what he's talking about there. See, God's people had always been the Jews. The nation of Israel, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who God had created a special relationship with, and made a set of promises too in the Old Testament. They were people that were set apart as God's people. And he made huge promises to them of inheritance, of blessing, of salvation. And they knew that he had a plan to save them, to reconcile them to himself, to keep his promises, and they knew he had planned to send them a Messiah and a Savior to deliver them. But what they didn't know, what no one but God knew, the mystery that wasn't known in previous generations but is made known now, is that when Christ came, lived a perfect life as a human being, and died, paying the penalty of our sins, that family was extended. If we are in Christ, who is the ultimate descendant of Abraham, great David's greatest son, not born by accident into that line, but by the plan of a wise and great and loving God, if we're in Him, we share in those promises. We are heirs, along with Israel, to the covenants God made. His plan for them, his plan to bring his people to himself, includes us. And that's wow. And that's a lot of what Paul's been talking about in chapters 1 and 2, leading up to chapter 3 here in Ephesians, that the result of all of this is that we're all one body, one big unit together called the church. And this is Paul's big mission. And like he said he would, he repeats it. And he reminds us of it in verse 7 through 9. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And although I am less than the least of the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages was kept hidden in God, who created all things. God has given me this special mission, he says, 
to share this mystery with you Gentiles and to preach to you the boundless riches of Christ. What are those? What are the boundless riches of Christ? Well, they're boundless, right? There are a lot of things. Um, If you open your Bible, you'll see the blessings and the good that comes from following Christ and comes out of his love are all over. But Paul has talked about the core of these riches back in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. And back there in chapter 2, he says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's grace. The undeserved kindness God showed in sending Christ, his perfect son, to die for us when we were still his enemies. It's by that grace that we share in all the promises. That's the grace by which we become his family in Christ. And our sins, they're not counted against us anymore. Because God is content to look on his perfect son who died to count us as his and pardon us on his merit. And that is rich. Those are riches. That is big. That is every possible blessing God pours out to us. It all comes from that grace that we were shown. And the point of these riches, the reason that that grace came to us in the first place is in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. His intent, so God's plan, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the meat. That's the center of what we're talking about today. The point of all of this, these riches we've been given, Paul's mission to the Gentiles, the mystery that's being revealed, the single unified body that we've become, the plan in all of that is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. That's been the plan forever. It's his eternal purpose, right? God didn't come up with this at the last moment and switch gears. It has always been the way he meant this to happen long before any of it was revealed. And when Jesus came and died for us, it was accomplished. At the very moment when the devil thought He was the winner, right? When the Son of God was nailed on a cross, that's when it was all pulled off. Look at those verses. This is the plan. It's been the plan forever. And it was accomplished in Christ. This is the plan. It's been the plan forever. And it was accomplished in Christ. So that the result of what Christ has done for the church, and that's us, that's you and me, the church, the result of what Christ did for the church is that we become evidence of God's wisdom. It's all about bringing glory to God. God is wise, His plan is good, and the proof, the way that's meant to be known, is the church. That's what we're for to show it. And to show it, 
get this, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's not just here on earth. That's not just being a witness to our friends and neighbors, which is awesome, but the angels look at us and what Christ did for us. And they say, wow, God is so wise. And the fallen ones look at us too and what Christ did for us and they shudder because they know how beaten they are. Wow. Well, that then feels like a pretty big responsibility. I'd love it if my only application point for today could be go bring glory to God. That's it. Simple, right? Go show his wisdom. Done. Let's sing. We can all go home. But then we get left saying, well, okay, but how? So I guess we have to keep reading. Verses 12 and 13 read, In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Well, here's my actual first application point for today, and I feel like it's almost not optional because this is the most direct point at which Paul tells us to do something. And it's actually to not do something. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. And it says, approach God with confidence. Remember how Paul introduced himself at the beginning of this chapter? He said he was a prisoner for Christ's sake and ours, right? And he literally was. Paul was actually writing this letter from jail where he had been thrown for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, not only could that be a little discouraging to Paul, it could certainly be discouraging for the people reading this letter, too. Is that where I'm going to end up if I listen to this Paul guy? I don't like the sound of that. But the last thing Paul says in this long digression, the way he finishes it before finally going back to the prayer he started in verse 1, is don't be discouraged by my suffering. And I think he gives us the key to doing that in the verse right before that, verse 12. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's one of the results of Christ's work in us. That's one of these riches that comes from grace. This is the God, the all-powerful creator of everything, who can do anything. In fact, Paul says in a minute that he can do more than we can even think to ask him. All right. And before this, there would only have been certain areas uh, in the temple, in the place of worship, that we Gentiles were even allowed to enter. And even for the Jews, approaching God was a serious, cautious thing. But here's Paul saying that we can approach freely and confidently. We can kneel, sit, or stand and pray anytime, anywhere, with no priest and no special equipment and no secret handshake. And that's a big deal. And if we really understood how amazing it was that we could do that, that we can approach God that way, we do it all the time, and we should. We should. What do you need to approach God with freedom and confidence about right now? Do you need encouragement? Do you need comfort? Direction? Clarity? Do you need forgiveness? 
In a few verses, Paul's going to say that, we, that God can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. He can do all we need and so much more. And he's worked this whole complex mystery in such a way that we wind up in a position where we can approach and ask for it. And when we do, we show that plan to be wise. And when we don't, we're not doing what we're made for. Don't be discouraged. Approach God freely and confidently because, because His wise plan says that you can, so do it, exercise it. And that's what Paul is about to do. In verse 14, he finally gets back to the prayer he started. He's got us primed now. He's made sure we know what we need to know and it's present in our minds that we are heirs together in one body called the church of God's promises, that this is God's plan, that it's been his plan forever, that it was accomplished in Christ, and that its purpose is to show God's wisdom through the church. So keep that in your mind as we read verses 14 through 17. For this reason... I, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now stop there. I know we're mid-verse in 17, but Paul makes a few requests on our behalf here, and they build on each other, so I don't want us to get lost in them. The first thing he prays for us for is strength. Where? In our inner being, in our hearts. Not in the way we use in your heart as a term that's just about emotion, right? But in our heart as the center of our thought and emotion and motivation. Everything that makes us who we are that isn't surface level. Why? So that Christ will dwell in our hearts. But this isn't about getting saved. When we talk about Christ coming into your heart, we're usually talking about that initial moment where you were previously apart from Christ, but now through faith you're in Him and He's in you. That's not what this is about. Paul's writing mainly to believers here. So the assumption is that they have been saved. This is something that started when you were saved and continues now that you are saved. You're in the state of being saved. Because the moment you believed in Christ, he dwelt in your heart. And he remains there now. And this has an effect on you. A good one. The old and the sinful is being restored and renewed. And by Christ's work in us, we're steadily being transformed. And for this process, we will need strength. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verse 41, Jesus says, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And those sound kind of to us like, okay, flesh, outer, physical, spirit, inner. But in the Bible, the flesh is usually referring to our own selfish or sinful desires. 
And these are both a part of our inner being. And there's a war going on within us. Our spirit is willing and wants to be renewed and redeemed. And we want Christ to dwell in us. But our sinful desires are there too. And they threaten to lead our spirit astray to any temptation that presents the opportunity. So Paul prays for strength for that weak flesh. And we should pray the same. So our second point is simply pray for strength. I know the first point already had to do with approaching God, and maybe this is more just a specific way of that, but it stands out too strongly here to skip over. We desperately need strength, the kind only God can give if Christ's work is to be shown in us. If we're going to do this showing, we need this strength. And Paul has even more to pray for us, so we'll pick up where we stopped halfway through verse verse 17 and read through verse 19. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure with all of the fullness of God. The next thing that Paul prays for us is that we would grasp something, namely Christ's love. What does it mean to grasp something? It's more than just knowing facts, right? It's more than just getting it at an intellectual level. I grew up in Ligonier, Pennsylvania, Does anyone here know Ligonier? Raise your hand if you do. Okay, a few hands up. And not just my parents. That's great. Um, Okay, well, I went to high school in Ligonier, and while I was there, I took a German class. And I remember we learned two different words that both meant to know. Weissen and Kennen. Congratulations, you know German now. They both mean to know, but they were slightly different. Weissen meant to know a fact, to know about something. So if you've heard of Ligonier, or you've driven through on Route 30, or maybe you visited our little amusement park, Idlewild, there, you could say you know Ligonier. And what you mean is you know about it, you know where it is, or you know some bits of what's in it. Uh, In German, you would probably use Weissen, You'd say, ich weiße Ligonier. But when I say, I know Ligonier, I mean something else, don't I? I mean, I grew up there. I mean, I know the best coffee, where to get ice cream, the secret places in the state park, the fun way to drive home through the Rolling Rock property. In German, I would use kennen, which also means to know, but the way you know a person more than the way you know a fact. It means something more along the lines of I'm familiar with. I think Paul's praying for us to know Christ's love in that deeper, familiar sense. That's what it means to grasp something, to get a hold of something, get a handle on it, come to grips with it. Because we can say we know about Christ's love. While we were sinners, enemies of God, Jesus was willing to give up his rights as God and live with us as a human being and die in our place. There it is, Christ's love, and it only took a couple seconds. But to really know that love, 
in a, I've experienced it, I'm familiar with it, I know it in an out kind of way, it takes something more. Because Paul says it's enormous, right? How do we grasp something like that? In fact, wait a minute, because that's a problem. How do we grasp something like that? In verse 19, he just told us what about this love? He said it surpasses knowledge. Now how am I supposed to know something that surpasses knowledge? It seems like a catch-22. How am I supposed to wrap my mind around something that's so wide and long and high and deep? Well, one part of it is to pray for strength in your inner being and to approach God with freedom and confidence and ask him for understanding. You see how this is building up upon itself? And in verse 17, Paul also says that it takes being rooted and established in love. And that's our third application. Root yourself in love. Well, whose love? Are we talking about our love for one another, for fellow pieces of the body, for uh, people outside the church that we're called to spread this love to? Um, Or are we talking about Christ's love and God's love towards us, that uh, supernatural, holy, huge love? Well, yes, both. The first one of those is the result and the reflection of the second one anyway. And it's that love that we've been established, grounded, and set up in. And Paul prays that we'll be rooted in it. How do we root ourselves in love? If we're rooted in something, it's our foundation. It's what we stand on and build on as we grow. Paul calls Christ the cornerstone and the foundation earlier in this book. It's what we cling to when we're blown over. So for one, study that love. Read about it. Take time just to think sometimes and ponder the love that Christ has shown you. And grab hold of that as your foundation where your roots cling to when troubles come. And then practice it. Because if we're rooted in something, it's what brings us nourishment, right? The tree metaphor here. Bringing nutrients up out of the ground. Everything we use to grow and act comes up from this thing we're rooted in. So if we're rooted in love, our actions should flow out of it. When we act, when we make decisions, when we determine how we'll treat other people, we should copy mimic and be driven by this love. And the result of doing that, of being rooted in it, is that we'll be able to grasp love. And that seems a little circular, right? Be rooted in love so that you can grasp love. Well, if I'm rooted in it, haven't I already grasped it? Um, But yes, that's That's what's incredible about this process is that it's a process. And that's how you become familiar with a place, right? A little bit at a time. The more you're there, the more you know, and the more you know, the more you go, and the more you find out. If you're just the littlest bit rooted in love, then you begin to know that love by experience, by by actually having it and feeling it and knowing it and doing it. Um, 
And by the time you spend, you get a little more rooted. And the better you know love, the more you're rooted in it. And the more you're rooted in it, the better you know it. And so on and so on. And it builds and builds and builds. And where does it go? What's the culmination of that? The peak of Paul's whole prayer. We come to grasp and know this great love of Christ so that what? Verse 19, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's the end result. That's the goal. That's what we're building towards in this whole prayer that you and I might be filled up with the fullness of God. What is fullness? It's the entirety of something, the completion of it, the whole sum of everything that it is, all of God's overwhelming glory. You are meant to be filled with it. And this is where it all comes together. That digression all about our point being for God's glory, connecting with this prayer. Because what you're filled up with is what you are for. What do you put in a drinking glass? You put a drink, right? Something to drink. Why? Because that's what it's for. What do you fill a gas tank with? Gas. Because that's what it's for. And it won't do what it's for if it's not filled. An empty gas tank doesn't make anything go. Back in verse 13, and this is cool, Paul said, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And we didn't say anything about it when we read it then, but I, I had trouble gripping that because he says his suffering is our glory. So you have to ask, how is Paul's suffering my glory? I mean, I, I, I get that it's God's glory. That's what we've been reading everything about, right? That, that this whole process, the whole mission, everything Paul's doing, the reason he's suffering and spreading this news to us is to bring glory to God. So, so how is Paul's suffering my glory? It's because we're meant to be filled with it. I mean, we, we get filled with glory over things all the time, right? Do we have Steelers fans here? Do we have Eagles fans here? Yeah, see, we're kind of we're kind of we're kind of in the middle of the state, right? Oh, you know, when your team wins, um, you get excited, you jump up and down, right? You didn't do anything out on that field, but you're full of glory. Uh, or when you take a friend to go see a band that you love and they never heard of, and they're like, "Wow, these guys are awesome!" You're like, "Yeah, I know." Filled with glory. We love that. We love, to, we love to share and brag up the things that are important for that. And we get so much joy out of being filled with their glory. And we've got a God that's so good that he's worked this whole plan to bring him glory. The way he set it up, the way he made it happen is a way that results in us then getting filled with that glory. And that's great news because isn't it the worst feeling in the world to feel empty? Have you ever felt empty or heard someone talk about just feeling emptiness? Like there's just nothing there. There's no point. There's no purpose. There's no plan. You're like, I don't know if I have an inner being. What would it possibly be? 
plan, we've got a God whose plan is to fill us. And that's the whole process that Christ is working with you right now. A little bit at a time, you're grasping that love, you're being strengthened, and you're being filled with that glory so that it overflows and you show it to the world, to the heavenly realms. You can't help but broadcast it anywhere because you're just filled up with that glory. And when Christ comes back and everything's made perfect and everything's made anew and the separated world is brought back to God, there's not going to be anything that's empty. There's not going to be anything that's even filled up, you know, just enough. Filled to the fullness, filled to the brim, to overflowing. It's the plan. That's what you're for. You're for God's glory and He will fill you with it. Verses 20 and 21. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, all these things going on, to Him be the glory in the church, us, and in Christ Jesus and what He's done for us throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God's glory. Don't be discouraged. Because this plan has been set up so that you can approach God with confidence. So pray for strength and do everything you can to root yourself in love because the rewards are huge and they are blessings. To close, I'd like to just pray together the prayer that Paul prayed for us. It was the thrust of this chapter. It's a he, he thinks it's a big deal. Um, and, and none of this will come about if we just sit and think maybe it'll happen, right? Ask God for it. He is great and can do more than we can imagine to ask, so let's ask Him. And we'll just read this together. For this reason, God, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen, Lord. Do it. As you've said, let it be. And through your immeasurable, unending power, make it happen. Amen.